The Letter to the Americans, Week 2. The reading comes from The Arrogance of Nations, reading Romans in the Shadow of Empire. Some historical background before we get started. It's important for you to know that the Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor who exiled the Jews from Rome, was assassinated, um, they think, by poison mushroom, which was served to him by his wife, and then his doctor also likely colluded in making sure he died, so that his adopted son Nero could take the throne. And soon after, Nero arranged for Claudius to be declared a god by the Roman Senate, and this, of course, by necessity, made Nero himself the, the son of God. An alternative offstage transcript, The View from Romans. Of course, neither Paul nor any of the members of the tenement assemblies in Rome would have had access to the sort of closed conversation among the elite just described, but several considerations justify comparing the opening lines of Romans with both the public transcript and the elite transcript just discussed, as these bear on the deification of Claudius and the succession of Nero. As observed earlier, Paul is not announcing the resurrection of Jesus. He is invoking it as the event in which Jesus Christ was appointed Son of God in power. From the start of the letter, Paul opens up a rich alternative transcript, an Israelite messianic transcript, proclaimed beforehand through Israel scriptures, according to which God's purposes for creation will be fulfilled through a king other than Caesar. The resurrection of Jesus constitutes divine confirmation that this messianic transcript is the real transcript revealing the future of the world. Given the heated ideological atmosphere we have just reviewed, and, as we saw in chapter 1, the readiness of Roman audiences to respond to even the subtlest allusions to political realities, the subversive undertone in these lines would have been unmistakable. Paul's phrases presented a conspicuous contrast with Nero's claims to legitimacy, as these appeared in numerous official inscriptions, namely his genealogy and his sonship to the now deified Claudius. Nero, according to imperial inscriptions, son of the divine Claudius, descendant of Tiberius Caesar Augustus and Germanicus Caesar, themselves sons of the divine Augustus, versus Jesus, according to Paul, descended from the seed of David according to the flesh, and appointed the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead. Here, Jesus is huios autu, son of God. Nero, too, is theu huios by virtue of the de decreed deification of his adopted father Claudius. Jesus is descended from David. In cognate terms, Nero is a descendant of Germanicus, his maternal grandfather, and of Tiberius, whose adoption of Germanicus established Nero's place in the Julian lineage. As Miriam Griffith observes, the double claim made in numerous inscriptions reflects an ideological tension at the heart of Nero's succession. His claim to power rested partly on his relation to Claudius, for whom he held barely disguised contempt, but in reality his selection by the army and the senate also depended upon his family connection with the ruling Julian house. No such vulnerability appears in Paul's description of Jesus, however. The genuineness of his royal lineage is assumed. In place of a senatorial decree of consecration, Paul declares him appointed as son of God, in power, according to, excuse me, according to a spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Along with the references to Israel's scriptures, these qualifiers go beyond presenting an alternative set of credentials for Jesus. They emphasize the reality of Jesus' messianic identity, as confirmed by sacred writing, royal lineage, and the power of God, and thus offer an implicit contrast with the ubiquitous, but in Paul's view, unreal claims of the imperial house. 
Declaring Jesus Son of God, descended from the seed of David according to flesh, implicitly distinguishes him from anyone who could not legitimately claim such a lineage, or whose claims depended upon the vagaries of revised wills or the maneuvers of ruthless mothers. To emphasize that Jesus had been appointed Son of God in power by resurrection from the dead invites comparison with merely procedural declarations of deification. That this happened according to a spirit of holiness presents a marked contrast with those to whom holiness could be attributed only by a posthumous legal fiat, especially if the honors had been requested by those suspected of murdering the candidate for deification. Interpreting these lines from Romans against a supposed history of intramural Christian creeds and seeking to distinguish which phrases do or do not represent Paul's own Christological beliefs sets artificial limits on the context of the letter. After we attend to the broader context of political discourse, we can recognize these lines as a cohesive expression of a richer alternative transcript maintained offstage among a subordinate group in Rome. As I observed in the introduction, identifying aspects of a hidden transcript in Romans does not require a precise determination of the relative poverty or social standing of Paul or the Roman congregants, although, as I observed, recent studies suggest that they were, in fact, materially poor. Rather, James C. Scott's discussion of voice under domination allows us to recognize the constraints the power imposed on what could and could not be said in different social locations. The comparisons just made allow us to recognize that in Romans, Paul engaged aspects of imperial ideology as surely as did Seneca satire or the eclogues of Calpurnicus Siculus, but to very different effect. Figure 2.3. Hidden and public transcripts regarding deification hidden transcript of the dominant. Deification is a political use, politically useful fraud, from Seneca. The public transcript, deification is the genuine destiny of the Caesars, from Calpurnicus Siculus. The hidden transcript in Romans, the true son of God is the heir of David, his deification alone is genuine, Romans 1 verses 3 and 4. Comparing the opening lines of Romans with these samples allows us to fill in the contrast at which Jacob Tobbs and Dieter Georgie hinted. If Romans 1, 3-4 does not provide an explicit political declaration of war against the Caesars, as Tobbs suggests, it, is, it at least offers an oblique but unmistakable shot across the bow of imperial propaganda. But to what purpose? Interpreting Paul's Gospel choosing sides. In a letter intended to further the obedience of nations, the implicit contrast between Christ and Caesar hardly can be incidental. Official claims that Claudius was now seated beside Augustus in heaven were expressions not of Nero's personal self-aggrandizement, but of ideological necessity. Stability, in the sense of the dominance of the Roman property classes, required representing that dominant as inevitable and appropriate. By necessity, the one person to whom the Senate had given absolute power was portrayed in the public transcript as perfectly embodying the qualities of honor, clemency, justice, and piety. Vertus, clementia, justitia, pietas. The murder of one emperor was reframed as a divine act guaranteeing the continuity of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. His successor was portrayed as the very advent of divine justice, willingly, willing selflessly to take on the burden of ruling the empire. A Critique of Imperial Injustice Paul continues and note that at this point, at Romans 1 verse 18, we are still in the middle of a single complex sentence, with a description of the impiety and injustice against which God's wrath is revealed, chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. Two important and inter interconnected questions are urgent. First, whom is Paul describing? 
Second, what purpose is this description meant to serve in the larger sweep of Paul's rhetoric? Unfortunately, here again, dogmatic assumptions about Paul's purpose in the letter have predetermined answers to both questions. On the assumption that in Romans the apostle is setting out a doctrine of salvation, these verses are made to bear the burden of summarizing the universal plight of all human beings who stand, by virtue of their humanity, under the power of sin. Nothing less than an indictment of humankind in the sin of Adam is supposedly in view. Paul does not mention Adam here, however. The sequence he does describe, from ingratitude in verse 21, to idolatry, verses 22 and 23, to bodily degradation, verses 24 through 27, to rampant inexcusable iniquity, verses 28 to 32, defies alignment with either Adam's or Israel's story. Further, Paul does not seem to be setting up a depiction of a human plight awaiting a divine solution. Rather, the spiral of degradation he describes is already the direct result of divine action. God handed them over, abandoning these rebels to utter iniquity. That is the revelation of God's wrath that demonstrates God's justice. As a depiction of human beings in general, this would seem to be an unacceptably harsh exaggeration. Consequently, a broad majority of interpreters prefer to break Romans 1.18 through 3.20 into a two-part indictment, finding here a description not of humanity in general, but of the Gentile world as seen from the perspective of Hellenistic Judaism. On this view, Paul turns to a separate indictment of the Jew, either at uh, chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 2, verse 17. Proponents of this view note that Hellenistic Jews often perceived idolatry and sexual immorality as characteristic signs of the Gentile world. A number of early Jewish texts describe the decline of the Gentile world at some mythic point in the past, either because of human folly and ignorance, or because of the deluding influence of fallen heavenly beings, the sons of God and first Enoch. We must return in the next chapter to examine the widespread view that this broad depiction of moral corruption is but a rhetorical feint, bait in a trap Paul means to set for an implied Jewish hearer. A few observations must suffice now regarding the character, tone, and thrust of Paul's argument here. First, as Stanley K. Stowers has rightly observed, narratives of moral decline were common throughout the Greek and Roman world beyond Hellenistic Judaism, from the Greek Hesiod to the Roman Virgil. Especially in the Principate, we find extended play on the mythic theme that a golden age had arrived with the accession of one or another Caesar. References to previous declines in the human race are now being reversed, thanks to the intervention of the gods and the radiant destiny of the Roman people. Virgil rhapsodized that with Octavian's triumph, wars cease and the rough ages soften. The gates of war, grim with iron and close-fitting bars, shall be closed. Paul's Roman contemporaries extolled the second birth of a golden age with the ascension of Nero. What none of these supposed parallels provide, however, is the notion that is the very engine of Paul's argument here, that outrageous and destructive sexual indulgence and, ultimately, the utter depravity described in Romans 1, 28-32 are evident to all as God's punishment on idolaters. This is not a decline narrative like the other examples adduced by scholars, nor is Paul describing a previous immoral age that now gives way to a golden age of justice and peace. This is not an ideology narrative either, offering a traditional Jewish explanation of how the Gentile world came to be, came to its present immoral state in need of God's intervention. This is Paul's announcement that God has already intervened, demonstrating divine justice precisely by executing divine wrath against those who practice spectacular wickedness. For the same reason, the heated attention these verses currently receive in tortured church debates over the place of homosexuals, the ordination of gays and lesbians, and the appropriateness of blessing same-sex relationships appears grossly misplaced. Paul is not offering a theological perspective on homosexuality, on homosexual desire, or on gay and lesbian persons. 
A number of official documents from different denominations state, solemnly but often with genuine sympathy, that from the biblical viewpoint, homosexual desire illustrates the effects of sinful humanity's fallen state in a way that heterosexual desire does not. But this is not Paul's point. It is now well established that the classical world did not conceive of what we today call homosexual orientation, a natural erotic preference for others of the same gender, as distinct from heterosexual orientation. Paul's contemporaries perceived a single reality, sexual desire, which could attach to people of either gender. How much less likely it is that Paul would feel constrained to offer an explanation of homosexual desire. Paul is not offering an explanation. Nor can we tell from these lines where Paul thinks homosexual acts in general come from, because homosexual acts in general simply are not in view. Instead, he refers to shameful acts, including homosexual acts, among others, that are the result of a specific terrible drama in which God has abandoned specific people, active idolaters, to degrading sexual desires. As a result of this divine action, these people have been made to burn with desire for others of the same sex, desires beyond what is natural, and have acted out these desires in shameful and destructive ways on their way to ever greater wickedness. Paul is not talking about homosexuals in general any more than he is talking about Gentiles in general or human beings in general. His field of vision is narrowly focused on people who refuse to honor God, embraced idolatry instead, and were abandoned by God to degrading sexual acts and profound wickedness. More to the point, these are people whose fate is so apparent to all that Paul can appeal to it as evidence that God's justice is now being revealed. Who are these people? My answer is that Paul intends his hearers to recognize definite allusions to none other than the Caesars themselves. No others could serve Paul's argument so effectively by offering in their own persons a fitting lesson on the inevitability with which divine punishment follows horrendous crimes. It is surely relevant that a similar perception was common among Paul's near contemporaries. Consider, for example, how Suetonius structured his review of the life of Gaius Caligula, the emperor before Claudius. After describing omens accompanying Gaius's birth and glimpses already in the child of the natural brutality and viciousness that would characterize the man, Suetonius reports allegations which he is ready to believe that Gaius had his predecessor and adopted grandfather Tiberius murdered. The new emperor's reign began hopefully, like a dream come true, but after narrating some actions and policies of which he approves, Suetonius turns to address Gaius the monster. First come the titles the emperor claimed for himself, pious and best and greatest of Caesars, then an, then an anecdote at which, at dinner, with visiting potentates, he toys with the title king. Only when his courtiers talk him out of such an ill-judged move, however frank a recognition of his actual power might have been, does Gaius settle on the title god. He then began to encourage worship of himself as a god, altering statuary of the Greek and Roman pantheons to bear his own likeness and establishing a shrine to himself. His arrogance led him to treat his own grandparents with contempt. He forced his father-in-law to commit suicide. Suetonius then reports Gaius's sexual outrages. It was his habit to commit incest with each of his sisters and to humiliate his wife publicly with the fact. As to his marriage, Suetonius summarizes, it would be hard to say whether the way he got married, the way he dissolved his marriages, or the way he behaved as a husband was the most disgraceful. He reports a series of women whom Gaius forcefully humiliated under the coarse disguise of marriage. As to other relatives, Suetonius declares, it would be trivial and pointless to record the cruelty with which Gaius led them to their deaths, at least compared with his weightier crimes. Suetonius treats similar maltreatment of senators and discreet executions of political enemies just as dismissively. Gaius's brutality toward the lower orders was notable only for its capriciousness and sadism. 
Suetonius connects the emperor's savage crimes, the cataloging of which continues for some while, with the astounding arrogance from which it sprang. Gaius claimed to possess the virtue of inflexibility, by which Suetonius quips he must have meant brazen impudence. Everything that he said and did was marked with equal cruelty, a cruelty indulged and accelerated, if not caused, by the unchallenged power he was allowed to wield. In his insolent pride and destructiveness, he made malicious attacks on men of every epoch, attempting to murder memory itself. At last, Suetonius returns to the far-fetched extravagances in which Gaius indulged, beginning with the sexual. He had not the slightest regard for chastity, either his own or others, as yet another list of predations indicates. Suetonius mentions passive and active homosexual encounters with celebrities, aristocrats, and various foreign hostages, as well as lechery expressed toward almost every woman of rank in Rome, including occasional rapes of women pulled from the dinner table and humiliated. Gaius was as abusive of Rome's wealth. These vices encouraged, converged when the emperor opened a public brothel as a fundraiser, staffed by coercion with women and youths from aristocratic families. After quickly reviewing Gaius's inconsequential conduct of military affairs, Suetonius refers to some apparent neurological disorder that might have explained his behavior. Suetonius believes this, is, this, this disorder accounted for both the emperor's overconfidence and fearfulness. Here was a man who despised the gods, yet shut his eyes and buried his head beneath the bedclothes at the most distant sound of thunder. At length, Suetonius reports several conspiracies to assassinate Gaius and narrates the one that succeeded. Officers who had suffered repeated humiliations ambushed the emperor at the theater and stabbed him to death, including sword thrusts through the genitals. Brutally obvious acts of vengeance. It would be difficult to imagine a career that better illustrated the precise sequence that Paul describes. Arrogant refusal to honor the divine creator, the turn to idolatry and worship of the creature, a descent into defiling sexual lust, and finally an expansive catalog of cruelty and outrage. The match between Paul and Suetonius is admittedly inexact. Suetonius speaks not only of the arrogance and insolence of Gaius, but of a brain sickness that drove some of his behavior. Paul offers no such organic explanation for the arrogant whom God punishes, and Suetonius is more interested in variant accounts of the plot to assassinate Gaius and the details of his execution. On the other hand, Suetonius also details portents on the days leading up to the deed, implying that the gods sanctioned Gaius' death. Paul's more theological perspective resembles that of another contemporary Judean. Philo of Alexandria speaks at one point of the supremely evil vices of infidelity and ingratitude to the benefactor of the whole world, who through his power bestows blessings poured in unstinted abundance on all people. This is not just a text combining similar concepts to Paul's. This is Philo's characterization of Gaius, specifically of his decision to promote himself, to promote worship of himself as a god. Philo, like Suetonius, speaks of Gaius's extravagance and incontinence, his insatiable appetite still unsatisfied when the cavities were stuffed full, and his lasciviousness venting itself on boys and women. He ridicules the pretensions to divinity on the part of one so demonstrably ungodlike, full of insatiable and quenchless lusts, utterly ignoble, brimful of cowardice, and stripping cities of all good and turning them into hell holes of misery. Surrounding himself with murderous sycophants, the emperor revealed himself a master avid for slaughter and thirsting for human blood. That bloodthirstiness, Philo declares, would eventually have decimated every Sydney in, in the empire had not his death at the hands of justice prevented him. And there the sky was dark and blue. Philo offers a similar verdict on the fate of Flaccus, the governor of Alexandria, whom Gaius recalled to Rome in the wake of the pogrom there. It was the justice which watches over human affairs that destroyed Flaccus. 
Further, as his erstwhile victims, the Judeans of Alexandria declare, as they give thanks to God upon hearing in their ghetto of Flaccus's arrest, God brought low the common enemy of the nation, not when he was afar off, but just here, close at hand, almost before the eyes of the wronged, to give them a clear picture of the swift and unhoped-for visitation. It was the public, visible punishment of the Roman enemy that offered the manifestation of God's justice. Both Philo and Paul provide theological perspectives on the divine punishment of the wicked. Gross ingratitude to God leads to insatiable lust, which leads to violence and outrage worthy of death. Philo calls the final punishment at God's hands justice. God speaks of the wrath of God, in which divine justice is revealed. Romans 1, 17 and 18. Philo refers explicitly to Gaius. Paul speaks more generally of human beings who through their injustice suppress the truth. I wish my point to be clear. We cannot say with certainty that Paul intended his audience to think specifically of Gaius Caligula. Certainly, the subsequent emperors also provided by their conduct ample justification for the sort of language Paul uses. To take but one example much closer to the writing of Romans, Claudius's cruelty and bloodthirstiness were notorious, according to Suetonius, who reports that among the scores of the, of the emperor's victims from the equestrian order was his own father-in-law. For his part, Nero, who had begun to reign as emperor only a year or two before Paul wrote this letter, had in his youth given evidence of insolence, insolent, lustful, extravagant, greedy, cruel behavior, which Suetonius later would have excused had it not been amplified after Nero came to enjoy extraordinary power as emperor to act with impunity. The caprice of Nero's brutality and his practice of every kind of obscenity, including the rape of a woman consecrated as a vestal virgin and incest with his own mother, appalled the historian, who nevertheless steeled himself to recount a few other particularly horrible practices. As previously mentioned, Nero's financial profligacy led him to desecrate temples, relieving them of any sacred objects made of gold or silver, which he promptly had melted down for his own profit. Suetonius recounts the most notorious murderers, especially of Nero's own mother and aunt, there was no family relationship which Nero did not criminally abuse. For his part, Tacitus reports that in the year after the murder of Claudius and the execution of Britannicus, Nero organized violent gangs for nightly rampages through the city streets, to the point that Rome by night came to resemble a conquered city. The point, then, is not to identify a specific emperor as the narrowly delimited reference of Paul's language in Romans 1, 18-32. I mean only to suggest that his hearers, living in the very city where the savagery of one emperor after another was notorious, would easily have heard his phrases as allusions to the imperial house. Recall that U.S. citizens quite easily decoded the campaign promise of one candidate in the 2000 presidential elections to restore the dignity of the White House, on its surface ambiguous enough as a clear reference to specific misdeeds of his predecessor. The specific sequence Paul describes, refusal to honor God, descent into idolatry, sexual debauchery and degradation, unrestrained ruthlessness, seems an almost clinical recital of the conduct of these men. Instead of imputing to Paul a heated, irrational exaggeration he, as he describes general human sinfulness or an equally stereotyped Judean prejudice regarding the rampant idolatry and immorality of the non-Judean world, we can read every phrase in this passage as an accurate catalogue of misdeeds of one or another recent member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. More important is the rhetorical force of Paul's argument here. The revelation of divine justice that grounds Paul's confidence toward his Roman hearers is evident in the revelation of divine wrath against wickedness, which he describes in some detail. His claim has rhetorical force only insofar as the phenomenon he describes, God handing over the evildoers to depravity, is immediately recognizable. To be sure, there are biblical precedents to this concept. For example, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 9, which will be recalled in Romans chapter 9. 
or gods reducing the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to living like an ox in the field in Daniel 4. Paul's language of the wrath of God being revealed simply invites his hearers to recognize a more contemporary parallel in the spectacular deaths of one emperor by assassination and another by presumed murder. Here it is important to recall the theme that Philo set over his extended account of Gaius Caligula's rise and fall, divine providence for human affairs. Most important, Paul's rhetoric impels his hearers to choose between the justice he represents and the rampant injustice that already stands under the wrath of God. This rhetoric implies an imminent day of reckoning to which Paul refers in Romans 13.12 as simply the day. Paul here invokes a shared, apocalyptically tinged transcript even as he asks his hearers to distance themselves from the sordid iniquity of the imperial house. This is an apparent minority transcript. It is an anomaly compared to the sources that come down to us from participants in Rome's imperial ideology or the accommodationist writings of some of Paul's Jewish contemporaries. And so for us, you can think through what are some words or phrases that are common in, in American political or cultural life that mean something very different from a biblical frame. Into the marrow of my bone, I stretch my trembling hand to fear and placed it on the stone and there the giant laid its head.